Welcome to the Boston Ed Talks podcast series, where we dive a little deeper into this year's Boston Ed Talks. The Boston Ed Talks are an annual celebration of Greater Boston's innovative teachers and teaching. We're going to learn a little bit more about these teachers, what makes them special, what makes their teaching special, and how you can apply what they've learned to your classrooms. I'm your host, Ethan Bronner. Today we're talking with Jeff Riley, who's been the superintendent of the Lawrence School System for the last five years. And Jeff's going to focus on the importance of working with the whole child, of both academic and non-academic elements of the school system, on treating teachers as professionals, and finally, in his effort to rebuild the Lawrence School System, how it all comes down to personal relationships. Jeff Riley, welcome to the Boston Ed Talks podcast. Um, you have uh, an unusual role in that you have been running a school system that was in deep trouble in Lawrence. Uh, you've been there, I think, five years, and you're both the officially called receiver as well as a superintendent of schools. So I know it's been um, an interesting and important challenge. I want you to talk for a few minutes about how you went about it and what you think you've mostly focused on to help Lawrence get on its feet. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, Lawrence was put in receivership in 2012, a little over five years ago, uh, for chronic underperformance. They felt that uh, the lowest, the test scores were the lowest in the state. Graduation rate was hovering at or below 50 percent. Uh, the school committee was uh, not a functional board, and there was deep problems. Uh, and so when I came in, I came in in the middle of the year, and I took the first six months to kind of assess the district. Mm -hmm. And actually what I found was just a tremendous amount of strengths that just weren't really organized. Uh, and so we set about uh, putting together a turnaround plan uh, where although there were many people that said, fire all the teachers, turn it into charter schools, we didn't do that, right? Mm -hmm. What we did was we kept probably 90% of the teachers because uh, we felt like they were great, good, or working to improve. Uh, and we did look at kind of the bottom-performing people that we thought weren't servicing kids well. And, uh, and let me just interrupt you for a second, Jeff. Yep. Is that fairly typical to keep so many of the teachers in a receivership situation? Uh, I guess it's more typical now in Massachusetts uh, based on what we did. But, you know, this the other model that gets looked at often is kind of the New Orleans model where they did, in fact, kind of shut everything down and start over. And start over. <clears throat> uh -huh. uh, I just felt like there was too many assets in Lawrence to do that. And I mm -hmm. felt that was disrespectful to the community. Mm -hmm. um, there was real talent there, and we just had to kind of maximize it. And so while we looked at the bottom 10 percent of teachers, I did – uh, take a bigger cut of the uh, the administrators. I replaced 50% of the principals. Oh, wow. I felt like there was a real problem in leadership there. Uh, and Can you lay it out a little bit? What, I mean, was there a particular kind of problem? Yeah. For me, the biggest problem that I found for leadership was um, they weren't uh, respectful and engaging of the parents. Hmm, One of the biggest misnomers that was talked about when I first came up was that the Lawrence parents don't care about their kids, they're not involved in school. And actually, that couldn't be further from the truth. The reality was is that the administrators, many of them, not all of them, uh, a chunk of them were basically saying, give us your kid at 8 in the morning. We'll give them back to you at 3 o'clock. Mm -hmm. Don't step foot in the door. You're mm -hmm. not welcome. And that was not acceptable. We really needed a partnership if we were going to make uh, changes. And so, you know, the bigger uh, gutting, if you will, was in the, in the uh, administrative core. And the teachers were 
on board with this idea of involving the community more? I think absolutely. I mean, we, we're doing something um, around home visits now where teachers actually go out and visit families in their homes, just strengthening the bonds between right. school and home, and it's been really powerful. And then kind of the third prong of the plan for the turnaround uh, was this idea of cutting the central office significantly. Uh, we cut about uh, 35% of the central office uh, and and took those dollars and put them back in the schools for things like arts and enrichment and a longer school day and supplies and materials. We felt like, uh, you know, my personal belief is there in city schools across America, there are these giant kind of floating bureaucracies which don't necessarily need to be. Yes. Uh, as a principal in Boston, I spent a lifetime evading and ignoring the central office <laughs> often uh, because I felt like it was, you know, it was not servicing the schools. It was like we work for them. Uh, when I came to Lawrence, we've changed the mindset of what the slimmed down central office to. We now work for the schools. And now that may sound like uh, verbiage, but the reality is that's how we're trying to run our district. We work for the schools to make their lives easier. That's amazing. So you you really, I mean, it was largely an administrative hit rather than a talent hit, it sounds like. I think so. I think, we, you know, the strength of the Lawrence Public Schools has been and always will be the teachers mm-hmm. uh, and the staff that support them. And, uh, you know, I would put my people up against anyone in the state. And were those teachers and staff not being given enough decision-making power in the before? You know, I, I would argue that they were not. It seemed like there was a lot of kind of top-down decision-making coming from uh, the central office. Mm-hmm. We decentralized our schools, and we wanted to put the authority at the individual school level. Again, based on my experience as a principal in Boston, I want you know, I felt like I knew what I needed, and I just needed to be able to have the green light to do it. And so we tried to hire people. Uh, as administrators that were willing to take personal ownership of their buildings. They joined with the other administrators that were really high quality, that were already there, and they'd work with the families and the teachers to do what's best for their neighborhood school. And so I know that there's been a lot of, you placed a lot of focus on teaching and teachers. What's different about how that's ha- going today than how it used to go or how, that was go- how it has gone elsewhere? You know, I, I think one thing we never talk about in education, it might be the dirtiest secret in education is, you know, there's this belief that all teachers are the same. And they're just not. And everyone knows that because everyone went to high school. And you know that you had a great teacher right next to a mediocre teacher, right next to a terrible teacher, right next to a maybe, you know, uh, an above average teacher. And so there's this variation in teacher quality, not just school system to school system or even school to school, but in any given school, classroom to classroom, there are different people uh, with different abilities. And that's not to knock people that are in the middle. It's just a recognition that we need to kind of uh, train our teachers in a way that they're able to view and peer observe our best people so that everyone can improve their practice. So talk about that. So you instituted some some of the system for that? Yeah, so we do, um, well, there's many things we do. I mean, I think backing up a little bit, that one of the first things I did when I came was we did a teacher leader cabinet. And I wanted to hear directly from the teachers. So we had about 70 people in the cabinet. Teachers would meet with me regularly so I could hear what's happening in the field. And what I kept hearing over and over again is we need opportunities to share with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of professional development out there in the world. In which you go and listen to someone you talk listen to, to you. Goes, yeah, it's often kind of a keynote speech. But it's and, not a collegial collaborative right, endeavor. Right, and it's not a sharing of best practices, uh-huh. right? I mean, there's, there's a greater benefit, in my opinion, for a math teacher to go look at another math teacher at the next school over 
on how they taught fractions or slope of a line or what have you because they might have a great idea. And in turn, they can come visit you and you could have a great idea. It's based out of this kind of uh, professional learning community model where we treat our teachers like professionals and adults and let them share practice with each other. So that's what you instituted there. That's a big part of what we're doing. I mean, I, I think we also wanted to recognize teachers. I mean, this, the Sontag Prize, which is something that I created in Boston, uh, is a recognition of high-quality city teachers. Um, people win the award. They come from all over the country, and they kind of work with our kids in small groups over the vacations. Uh uh, to give them kind of extra intensive tutoring, and it's been shown to be pretty impactful. To the, the fact that there is such a, an award, you're saying is well, it's not just the fact that there's an award. I mean, I think too little, uh, too too often, we don't pay enough attention to great teachers, mm-hmm. uh, and we wanted to find a way to celebrate great teaching uh, in city schools. And so this was the vehicle to do that. And what we did was we married these great teachers with kids that needed a little extra help. And when you do that, and you have extra time over a vacation. Uh, there was been some studies done that said, you know, it's equivalent to going to a high-performing charter school for a year, this one mm. week of instruction, wow. which tells you how impactful great teachers can be. Yes. You know, th- one of the th- sort of trends in education of the last 25 years has been business folks saying we need to run schools more like businesses. Yeah. And one of the <laughs> – I hear you sighing, and that's fine. But one of the – claims that's made is that uh, you need to pay people better if they do better, or if their children perform better. I'm wondering how that fits in with what you've been doing and what you think. Well, that's a very complicated question. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> we can break it down. So, I, you know, I think there is this, there has been a kind of business model that's been out there for the last decade or so. And while there are some very valuable things that come with that kind of model, uh, kids are not widgets, right? And I don't think adults are either. And so we've got to be very careful about how we do that. Teaching is an art form. Uh, There are certainly um, very skills and structures that teachers know, but there's also kind of a human element to it, which makes it a little harder to quantify. Uh, So we've got to be careful with kind of the business model. With that said, we've tried to have a compensation structure that rewards people that are doing really well earlier in their career, Uh right? So in the past, in most educational systems, you have these things called steps and lanes where everyone's kind of lockstep, moves the same, uh, regardless of ability. We wanted a way uh, to recognize great teachers earlier so they could jump up on the ladder and make a higher salary at an earlier rate. And Partly the, as a retention method? Absolutely. You know, uh, the, the research is staggering uh, for the uh, amount of teachers we lose within the first five years right. in public education in America. And so for a teacher to feel like, you know, they're going to get a, a really good salary in their fourth or fifth year, they're more likely to stay. And that's what you want. You don't want to lose good So people. that clearly is one element to be able to yep. reward monetarily those who are promising and doing great work early in order to hold on to them. But what I also heard you say when you talk about teaching, treating them like professionals is that there are other elements of one's professional life apart from one's salary that are important. There's no doubt. I mean, there's very few teachers in America that are here for the salary, right? I mean, I think <laughs> right. there's the personal satisfaction that comes with helping kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the recognition of that and the treating teachers like professionals is something that we have not always done and we need to really work on. So what does that mean? Uh, So, you know, uh, in Massachusetts, for instance, we have this kind of compliance-driven evaluation system where you have to be evaluated, you know, all the time and it's, you know, tons of documents. But, well, if you're a great teacher and you've been a great teacher for five or ten years, 
this is kind of an exercise in futility. It's always nice to hear from your principal that they still think you're wonderful, but is that actually helping them get better or respecting them mm-hmm. as an educator? I would argue, and what we're trying to do with the teacher union right now is uh, to kind of move away from that system and move towards this kind of peer observation system where a great teacher can go and say, hey, I heard about this. There's another great teacher, you know, five schools over. I want to go visit their classroom, right? And that will be you know, a part of a peer observation that I'll do instead of this kind of document that you kind of run through every year to get done. And how have the unions responded to what you're doing? You know, I think um, we've had a pretty good partnership with the teachers union in Lawrence. That's not to say everything's always been rainbows and unicorns, uh, but they've been a part of the story. Uh, We need to continue that relationship and, and, you know, because these are things that can go off the rails at any time. So you need to make sure you continue that relationship and collaboration. But I think, you know, when when you talk about the Sontag Prize, uh, the union was fully on board with that, right? And I think when we talk about treating teachers more like professionals than like widgets, I think they're going to be more happy with that as well. You know, at your Boston Ed Talk, you spoke about your own personal story when you were injured as a child. And you also spoke about your daughter, who's had special education needs and who's now at Boston Latin, quite remarkably, if I understood correctly. And I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about what you, the lessons you drew about your own and your daughter's story and the broader story of education. You know, I I think... um Every parent loves their children, right? Uh, and uh, well, if only that were so. But anyway, <laughs> go ahead. And and all children are different, right? Kids have different needs. My daughter is a genius in so many ways, but she needed extra help with some things, uh, with some speech. She has sensory integration disorder. Um, there's different things that and help that she needed along the way, and that she got um, with amazing teachers in the Boston public schools, right? And she, she was not lacking for her talent or ability, but she certainly needed some accommodations and some support, uh, to help her, you know, move up a, and do better. And she got that. And, you know, in school, sometimes not all kids get the supports they need to really develop to their full potential. Uh, I feel blessed that my daughter was someone that actually has bloomed in a situation like this because, you know, when, when you have special needs, there's a tendency sometimes to feel different. And, you know, sometimes school isn't so fun and exciting, but my daughter has always loved school. And that's a testament to the great teacher she's had. It may also be a testament to her. No doubt. Uh, and, um, and in a way, maybe it's a little easier to help a person like your daughter who's enthusiastic but has special needs than people who have, you know, who have hostility or who are really unhappy when they're in school. And I'm wondering what lessons we can apply to those because you're, you must be dealing with plenty of students like that. You know, all kids are different and they all come with different challenges. Um, sometimes in the city we see kids coming from poverty, right? And there's a lot of issues that can come with poverty. Kids sometimes don't know where their next meal is coming from. Sometimes they have an unstable home situation. Uh, there, there's any number of problems that can be taking place, mental health, um, that you have to kind of deal with before you can actually get to the instruction, mm-hmm. right? So it's important to have kind of those uh, supports uh, in uh, student support services for kids so that you can get the kids in a place where they're ready to receive instruction. Right. You know, a kid that hasn't had breakfast or didn't have dinner and breakfast isn't as excited about algebra uh, at 7 in the morning. That's right. Unless they've had their breakfast. And But it, it seems to me also from what you're saying that teachers themselves need to recognize when that's the case sure. and also need to be trained in 
sort of helping form the whole person, not just in quadratic equation instruction. There's no question. It goes back to what we talked about earlier, where teachers are, have these finite skills that they've learned to teach, right. but they also have to be nurses and social workers and school psychologists. The teachers have many hats that they wear, and the art comes in being able to uh, take a wide variety of kids with a wide variety of needs get them what they need, and then also provide the instruction. Can you train people to to see to be, be all those things? I think you can. I think it's incredibly difficult. Right. It's, not an, it's not an easy fix. Uh, if it were, we wouldn't be having the issues that, that remain today uh, in urban and, I would say, rural education, right? I mean, yes. America's a, we're, we're in an interesting place right now. I think for the first time uh, in several decades, uh, 51% of American public school kids are, are going to are living at or near the poverty line which means that more than half of the kids that go to public schools in this country are getting free or reduced lunch. And that's a pretty staggering statistic, that's and I huge. think it speaks to uh, the loss of the middle class and many of the problems that we see today, right? And the so, loss of the middle class in the public school system. Well, mean, I think in the whole country. Yeah, I, right. You know, I think uh, mm-hmm. America's founded the, on this idea of a meritocracy. Yes. If anyone works hard enough, you, you can do or be anything. But that only actually works, one, if all kids start in the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know that kids in, in rural areas and the cities sometimes start behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, uh, it's that they have these actual opportunities to move up uh, to the middle class situation. And in my, you know, it looks to me like those opportunities are diminishing for everyone in this country. And when you talked earlier about the program of sending teachers into people's homes, is mm-hmm. this related to, to some of these questions? I, I think it is. I, I mean, I think what we've seen is uh, too often uh, parents only hear from a school if something's gone wrong. Yes. Uh, whereas to be able to go and visit a family and have the kids show off their, their room and the family to meet them on a personal level and then to follow that up with a phone call saying, hey, your kid did this amazing thing in class today. So that if a kid does have a behavior problem or an issue with another kid, when they call later, the parent is more likely to say, hey, they're with me. We're together. We'll fix this rather than the only phone calls I've ever gotten in the last 10 years have been when my kid's been in trouble. Mm-hmm. And those are two very different things, right? I mean, it's trying yes. to build a, a relationship with families so that they trust you um, to take care of their kid. It's interesting because one of the things that these Boston Ed Talks also I felt I learned in listening to them is the important role, at least that many teachers today feel there is, in being genuine and authentic in the classroom sort of allowing his or her humanity to come out as a teacher, not to be just some kind of cardboard uh, authority figure. Um, And that sounds interesting and useful to me. On the other (laughs) hand, I'm wondering whether it means that there is a reduced sense of hierarchy and whether there's a downside to the loss of hierarchy in our world today. You know, I feel like uh, we're living in a very polarized world these days, and um, the truth is is sometimes in the middle, uh, and there's no right way to... Do algebra. There's constructivist-based math. There's you know uh, uh, numerical-based math. There's whole language. There's phonics. Yes. You know there's inclusion. There's exclusion. They're all okay for and, different people. And it, it really depends on how it's executed, yes. right? And for a teacher, on the other hand, you've got to have so many skills. I don't think uh, your your uh, job is to abdicate your authority necessarily. On the other hand, I believe we've seen. Uh, some schools and some teachers that have become these kind of rigid automatum, autom- what's that word? Robots. Automaton. Robots. <laughs> Automatons, yes. yes. Uh, robots. And 
I'm not sure. I, that's not what I'd want for my kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, you know, you have to kind of walk the line. And look, I was a middle school principal for a long time. Uh, and that's that's a tough gig. And, uh, <laughs> you know, 513 year olds and, and is uh, never easy. Uh, and so you have to have structures in place. But kids have amazing detectors and they know if you care about them or not. And, and is your sense that. that is your sense that a greater approach to sort of genuineness is a, a useful thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, everything in education is about personal relationships with kids. That's kids, what's so fascinating. Kids have right? these BS detectors and they know uh, if you like them, if you care about them. Uh, and, and they'll they're willing to go along with structure if they feel like you're on their side. And and on the other hand, uh, what kids do not like is judgment and you know over the top kind of authoritarian discipline. And and another another thing that has come out to me in these talks uh, is the incredibly subtle and vital role of community for kids. Mm-hmm. That is to say that if they don't feel supported among themselves and among in something larger. Their ability to learn is diminished. Is that something you've seen in Lawrence? I think absolutely. Uh, what comes to my mind right now is when I came, <clears throat> when I first came to Lawrence, the arts and enrichment opportunities for kids had dwindled considerably. There was so much hand wringing and focus now on these tests yes. that we've kind of lost our way. And yeah. and I, I mean, listen, when I went to school, I went to school more for sports than for academics. It took me a while for the light to go on. And I think we need different hooks for kids. And you talk about building a community with children, like being a, in a play with other kids, being on a team with other kids, being on a, you know the debate league, whatever it is, these are opportunities that kids need to have. We have academic achievement gaps, which are kind of the test scores and the, 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 the road academics. And those are important, and we've got to fix those. But we also, in my opinion, have these opportunity gaps. Hmm. Those are the high-quality enrichment experiences that suburban kids often take for granted, but my kids don't always have access to. And we spent as much, if not more, time on those in Lawrence uh, because we felt like our kids needed to have the same exact opportunities as everybody else. What are you referring to? Uh, I'm referring to bringing back step dancing and theater and cooking and uh, debate league and the chess club and all of these things, you know, tutoring They've components. They've been sort of stripped away in the, order the, to so-called the, focus the, on the academics? The, the curriculum has been narrowed in most school system, uh, many school systems. And was it because uh, of ex- lack of money? What was the reason? Uh, I think it was because of uh, the rigid focus on test scores mm-hmm. and fear um, right. of uh, kind of punish and test system. But the but the, the test scores remain important. Yes. Are, are you arguing these other things will actually help test scores go up? I am actually absolutely arguing that. <laughs> That's exactly what and I'm arguing. It's quite count- and in some ways it makes sense, but obviously right. it was counterintuitive to begin with, and that's why they thought, okay, no, no, no we got to worry about the right. test. Let's just do the test. Right. Well, we'll do triple out- math and triple right. English and no more anything else. And that right? turned out to be a very bad idea. I think it was a very bad idea. Yeah. And, you know, you need a, kids need a holistic education. Mm-hmm. And um, In order to do the specific rigors of academia, that's what's so interesting about it. Absolutely. Yeah. And and we've We're got just learning that. Well, and the, it's easy to measure a test. It's harder to measure the value of being on an ensemble in the theater, mm-hmm. right? But what I can tell you is getting up in front of 500 people and singing a song or being part of an intricate dialogue, that's an important skill to have in life. As is getting up each day and doing that thing Absolutely. in a group. Absolutely. So um, it's been five years, and you've... Um, uh, brought about a lot of change, and we've talked about a bunch of it. Tell us uh, how the academic results are and what you're seeing as you move forward. 
So I would say that Lawrence has arguably been the most improved school district in Massachusetts over the last five years. That's not to say that we don't have a long way to go. Uh, we do. There's, there's much, much more that needs to be done. But we've, you know, we went from being kind of the lowest performing district in Massachusetts to leapfrogging 25 other districts. Our MCAS scores are the highest in district history in math, English, and science. Our graduation rate has gone from, I want to say, 51 to 73. That's fantastic. Uh, and our dropout rate has been cut in half. Hmm. So uh, really strong results um, with the recognition that, you know, uh, education takes constant gardening and it's always uh, something we have to improve on. It's a very challenged population, isn't it? We are, you know, are, I think one of the poorest states, if not the districts in Massachusetts, if not the poorest, certainly, and one of the poorest on the East Coast. And large um, uh, immigrant population? Indeed. Uh, we have many second language learners, mostly Latino, mm -hmm. um, from the Dominican Republic. Uh, before that, I think folks came from Puerto Rico. And before that, it may have been Poland and Ireland. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course. Lawrence has an amazing history of uh, the factories. And... Yeah, my great grandmother was actually born in Lawrence wow. and worked in the mills. Um, yeah, at the turn of the century, That's at, amazing. the 1900s. Yeah, yeah, but you're right. I mean, each generation comes with a different from a different country. But uh, the and the challenges are some ways similar and some ways different because we're in a different world today. Yeah, right. I I, I guess I argue a lot that um, Lawrence is an amazing community and in many ways is exactly the same as the situation the Irish and Italians were in in Boston a hundred years ago. Right. Big families love their kids, want a shot at the American dream, hardworking. Uh, and, you know, we just, as educators, need to make sure they get what they need. And they were being somewhat cut out, is what you're saying, And the, before, before you guys started to rethink how to do things. We have now a family engagement center. We have a PTO President's Council where uh, 30 different parents are elected as the president of their own school. They come and meet with me every other month. Uh, parents are an amazing resource in Lawrence yes. and have been unfairly maligned. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for a long time. And it seems clear that if you don't have them on board, the kid is not going to do well. Yeah, I think that's for everybody, right? Yeah, I think, you know, course, I, I think uh, it, you need uh, the kind of homeschool collaboration. Mm -hmm. And and certainly we've seen, whether it's in the suburbs or the cities or in rural areas, when parents aren't as involved, there, there could be issues. And Jeff, what is the plan in terms of how long do you officially stay in receivership? So uh, the plan for receivership is that the commissioner will look later this spring as to what next steps are. Oh, you mean in 2018? Uh, yes. Uh, will that be a transition out of receivership? Will it be a continuation out of receivership? I'm not sure. Uh, obviously, the problem has been um, exacerbated in some way because of the, the commissioner just passed away. Oh, so right. they have to hire a new commissioner and... Uh, he or she needs to get on board and kind of make some decisions. Uh, whether that'll be in the spring or delayed, I don't know. But, uh, you know, ultimately, in my opinion, the job is to try to get the district out of receivership and back. Uh, and, and what would it mean, in other words, in, if in theory you guys have made a bunch of changes that have been well-received, mm -hmm. uh, people are happy with them, to move out of receivership shouldn't be to, not, to no longer do what you're doing. What would it mean? Specifically, it mean that you would no longer be in charge, or so, or you would no longer be called the receiver. Uh, all of those things are unclear at the moment. Uh -huh. What is clear is that uh, folks in the city are going to need to kind of get together, if and when they say we're going to transition out of receivership to to work on the details. What does that look like? Is that just going to go to uh, back to the school committee? Will there be a board? 
uh, that's maybe a hybrid of appointed and elected or just appointed? What's the what's the dynamic going to be so that it's not going to be just, you know, the keys are turned over and it's back to normal? I'm sure there'll be some kind of transition out. And the and, original board, the board that you replaced, was all elected? Uh I did not replace no. a board, so I inherited a school committee. Oh, sorry, a school committee. Yeah. Forgive me. So you inherited a school committee, and right. they it, remained in, in position, but with in redu- reduced power. They did. Okay. Uh, I, you know, obviously, I had an opportunity, uh, given the authorities granted to me, to kind of do away with the school committee and to not w- meet with them. But I felt like that was disrespectful. People had run for office, and and. You know, we so these were all elected spots. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my fundamental kind of theory of action was that we wanted folks to be engaged in the process. So I didn't think that killing the school committee would be a good idea. We wanted to have them as allies. And I don't believe that there's a, a big difference between um, the school committee in the last five years and the school committee's role before that, but a lot of people point to the fact that they don't have the same authority. And school committees typically have two authorities. They have the authority to hire and fire the superintendent, of course. which they do not have. Uh, right. the, only the commissioner has that. And uh, they have the ability to approve the budget. Those are the two primary um, functions of the school committees. And does this committee and have the budget power now? They don't have the budget power, but they certainly have the ability to go through the budget with a fine-tooth comb, and we spend several meetings on the budget, so it's all published. It's all uh, on the online and everything else. They get the full packets and get to ask all the questions. and So certainly um, it's very comparable to a traditional school committee. I mean, there doesn't seem like any reason why the state would not move it out of receivership, given the progress that's occurred, right? I don't know. Um, I it's, it's not my It's a call. pretty new phenomenon, also, this <laughs> right. receivership Right. You know, business, I think, right? you know, you've seen um, Chelsea, I think, was in receivership for 15 years, maybe. I, uh, uh-huh. I don't know what the timetable is. It's going to be... Uh, the decision is going to be made by the commissioner of education and right. people above my pay grade. Right. I understand. Uh, <laughs> So in many ways, the the changes that you made in Lawrence focused on the teachers. Um, how did they react to the changes that you um, instituted, and how have you helped keep them engaged but not uh, burned out? So I think the teachers uh, were initially very fearful and skeptical uh, about the powers of receivership and what that could be. I think um, they I felt to... that they were on a losing team, obviously. Right. I mean, the teachers had been unfairly maligned mm-hmm. uh, repeatedly in the media and other places, right? And these are folks that are, you know, coming in every day, working hard, and of it just didn't seem uh, it didn't seem to match up. And so, what we wanted to do is let the teachers know we wanted to hear from them. Number one, we needed their voice. Uh, but we also needed them to kind of jump in and help, you know, be part of the solution. And, and that's what they did um, w- with some, you know, tougher situations, right? We've asked teachers to work a longer school day. Uh, and so you worry about burnout and you and you try to create uh, cultures where there is time for teachers to have um, time to reflect on their practice and talk to their colleagues and things like that. So those things were built in, but it is a longer school day. And so that's not something to to overlook or to take lightly. Um, overall, I think, um, as I said, that the teachers uh, cared deeply about the kids in Lawrence, and they just were tired of being maligned. And they, and they understood that what you wanted to do I think they under- was good. 
I think they, uh, you know, not everyone. Well, I'm, obviously I'm not, not everyone's favorite person <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Imagination. I had to make some tough choices, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I had to make some tough decisions with, you know, people that still aren't happy about some of yes. those decisions. But at the end of the day, um, I think teachers will acknowledge that everything I do is on behalf of the kids first and foremost. Um, but coming in at a very close number two is this idea of supporting your teachers. When I was a principal in Boston, 95% of my job was to make my teachers' lives easier so they could do their jobs. I'd do lunch duty. I'd do the discipline. I'd do the bus yard. I'd get the supplies and materials so they can just do the most important part in education, which is teach. Mm-hmm. Um, this ed reform movement that's been going on for the last 10 years is all about systems and structures. And uh, we've forgotten about the most important thing, which is the classroom teacher. And so, the, and and as a result, the teachers that are working now in Lawrence, you you think that they have generally been feeling pretty good about what's happening. I think they feel respected. They feel valued. I think the Sontag program that we did early to recognize great teachers and the professional development weekend, where they were kind of wined and dined at Harvard University. I mean, I think people realize that uh, my number one priority um, is to to celebrate and to to help better good teaching. Because that's what my job is, to make sure that our kids have the best teachers possible. Jeff, thank you very much for being here. Uh, I I, I think that the the focus that you've placed on teaching in Lawrence has clearly been a winner. And it has been a theme uh, of the Boston Ed Talks this year. The the importance of having teachers collaborate, being valued as professionals, and working together It's quite remarkable. You look at what's happening in Revere as well as what's happening in Lawrence. You see that this is a winning strategy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To watch the Ed Talk discussed in this podcast and learn about future Ed Talks, go to www.bostonedtalks.org. You can also find the Boston Ed Talks on the Boston Foundation's YouTube channel, on Twitter at Boston Ed Talks, and on Facebook.